Uh, if you have a Bible, please open to the book of 1 John. If you need some, they're down the middle aisle. Uh, so if you need a Bible, just shoot your hand in the air. Someone will get you one. And it's, it's the book of 1 John as we go through another overview sermon on, uh, in our Read the Bible Together series. And after we tackled Genesis last month with all 50 chapters or not, uh, this month we're going to attempt just 1 John, which has significantly less. Uh, while you're turning to First John, let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning for your words to us. We thank you that what we hold in our hands is your very words that give life and hope and meaning to us. We pray that you would speak now through this uh, short book. Uh, you would encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith in you and lead us to glorify you as the people that you have called us to be. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh man, I don't know if anybody here has seen the film Catch Me If You Can. It's, the, uh, it's a Steven Spielberg film, and it's the true story of a chap called Frank Abagnale. Uh, and it was released in, uh, probably before some of you were born, in 2002. And it tracks the true story of this guy, Frank Abagnale, who runs away from home as a teenager because his parents' marriage disintegrates. Uh, and he... Uh, goes on because of a series of circumstances, because he's got no money, because he's got no prospects, he becomes one of the most successful impersonators and bank fraud con artists that the world has ever seen. Uh, and Frank, who in the film is played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, manages to pretend to be a teacher and an airline pilot and a Harvard-educated doctor and a Berkeley-educated lawyer, as well as cashing fake checks to the tune of nearly $4 million. And this was in the 60s, okay? And the story tracks his life. And all of that happened before he was 19 years old, okay? So he pretended to be all of these things. Now, obviously, the FBI soon are on to him. And uh, Tom Hanks plays this FBI agent, and he pursues this clever teenager all around the world, trying to catch him. And after several years, he finally ends up catching Frank Abagnale, and he gets tried and thrown in prison for 12 years for forgery and embezzlement and fraud, among other charges. And he's sent to a maximum security prison in Atlanta, Georgia. But the FBI agent who captures him keeps going back to visit him, and eventually they develop this relationship by which Frank goes to work for the FBI, as, uh, and he's enlisted in their services to be able to spot other fraudsters and forgerers and con men, uh, and he goes on to a successful career uh, as uh, helping the FBI, and he sets up his own security company uh, to capture and help uh, guard against fraud and, and forgery and so forth. And there's the scene, this particular scene in the film where they're in this kind of in interrogation room in the prison and there's a couple of FBI agents there and they say, well, let's just see how good you are. And they hand him a check and he immediately says it's fake. And they say, well, how do you know? And he says, well, real checks have perforated edges and they're printed on a different bit of paper and the ink doesn't raise up on the thing. And he says, you know... Um, this is definitely fake, and they, they're amazed that just by touching this check, he can tell immediately that it's a fake. And, uh, and as I was reading online about this particular story, over the years, it's become common now within the FBI to train people who are in the bank fraud sector 
not to spot counterfeits, but to get them so uh, clear and uh, with so, come to such clarity on what the real thing is that as soon as they see or touch a fraudulent check or money, they say, oh, that's fake, because they're so aware of what the real thing looks like. And that's basically what the book of 1 John is about. If someone was to ask you the question, how do you identify true Christianity, and how do you separate that out from counterfeit or fake Christianity, what would you say? Well, John comes and he says, uh, much in the same way as the FBI do now, if you're aware and au fait with what real Christianity looks like, you'll be able to spot fake Christianity, whether that's in your own life or in the lives of those around us who influence us. And so 1 John is written to help us and help the original church, first of all, but then help us to identify true Christianity from counterfeit Christianity. This letter was written to a group of churches, house churches, probably in and around the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, who had been troubled by some events that had happened to their church. Uh, If you remember in Acts 20, when Paul is on his final way uh, to Jerusalem, he stops in Miletus and he calls the church elders from Ephesus to come and see him. And he tells them, listen, you've got to be warned, you've got to be ready, because eventually false teachers will rise up from within the church and they will be like wolves among the sheep and they will steal, try and steal many people away from the faith. Well, John is writing to that very scenario in that very church. False teachers had arisen from among the church, from people in the church, and they were beginning to teach all sorts of heresy. One of the particular things that they were teaching was that Jesus wasn't really a human, that he wasn't the true Messiah. And that was obviously very unsettling to the church because these were people that they knew. These were people that they loved. These were people that had been around the church for a while and now they were saying something different to what they had heard from John. So how could they spot whether this was real or fake? How could they spot whether this was genuine or counterfeit? Well, John writes to them with three tests that this church and all Christians should should carry out on their own lives and on all of the teaching that they hear from others in order to assess whether it's true Christianity or fake. And he's going to give us three tests. That's what the book of 1 John is about. And it's going to be, he's going to outline for us what true Christianity looks like so we can spot the fakes. Three tests. Uh, He says there's going to be a doctrinal test. Then there's a moral test. And then there's a love test. So a doctrinal test, a moral test, and a love test. Uh, And really, the the key verse of the whole book of 1 John is, is... Chapter 5, verse 13. So why don't you just turn there for a second? Because John gives us the very purpose of his book, so you know that I'm not making it up. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So I'm writing this so that you may know you have assurance, you can have hope that if you pass these tests, your faith 
is real and genuine. But on the other hand, if we don't pass the tests, well, the implication is perhaps you need to reassess whether you're believing something that is counterfeit. Now, the book of 1 John is really quite uh, a wonderful read. It's full of lots of profound moments, lots of coffee cup verses, things that you want to put on your wall. But it's also one of the most difficult books to read in the New Testament. <laughs> Great, why did we choose this? Yeah, But it's one of the most difficult ones because it it's, can be tricky to track John's train of thought. Because if you read Paul, he starts at A and he goes B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, all the way through to Z. And his, it's a kind of, usually it's a linear thought interspersed with some kind of tangents, but generally it goes pretty linear. But where you get to John, it's not a linear argument. It's not in a straight line. It's more like a sort of a classical uh, musical comp- uh, composition where there's a very clear beginning in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, and there's a very clear end in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 5. And then in between, John has three kind of core ideas or core movements, this doctrinal, this moral, and this love test that he keeps kind of circling back to three times. So he kind of touches on them, and then he kind of, you know... And, and then he circles back again, doctrinal, moral, love. And each time it's kind of with amplification and to, as he builds towards a crescendo. So you just got to spot that because it's not a linear argument. He's circling back. So you think, as you read, you think, well, how does that connect to that? How does this connect to that? And then you see, it just seems to be a bunch of random thoughts. But actually, if you keep in mind this doctrinal, moral, and love test, and he hits on those three times with a kind of a rising amplification towards his big crescendo finale, you'll be able to track along with it. But let's look at these three tests. Because how do we spot if we're true Christians and if we've got hold of the real thing? Well, the first one is the doctrinal test. And the answer to the test is that the true children of God believe in Jesus the Christ. True children of God believe in Jesus the Christ. In uh, John 14, uh, John, the same writer of the gospel as is the letter that we're studying, records Jesus as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So God is concerned about truth. He's con- he is truth himself. He's the standard of truth. He sets and determines what the truth is. And he's also concerned about his people believing the truth. So the first test he gives us to determine real versus counterfeit faith is a doctrinal test that we must believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, and that he came in the flesh. As I said before, the false teaching that was going around these churches was heresy about Jesus wasn't really flesh and bone. He just appeared as a human. Excuse me. He took on the likeness of a human being, but he never really took on bone and flesh and skin and blood and guts. He just appeared that way. And that's because they believed, these false teachers had come to believe that Human flesh was somehow sinful, that matter in the universe, and by matter I mean stuff, was evil and bad, and that the spiritual was good, but the flesh was bad. And so they said, of course, if, God is, if Jesus was God, he would never take on something that was sinful and bad. So they didn't believe that he took on flesh. 
They didn't believe that he was fully man. Now, some of you might sit and think, well, that's just a kind of academic argument, isn't it? Does it really matter? You know, it, why should we get our knickers in a twist over all of this? But if you think about it for a second, <clears throat> if Jesus wasn't fully man and fully God, if, if those two things aren't true, then we have no hope as Christians. We have no salvation as Christians because if Jesus really didn't take on flesh, we don't have anybody who could substitute for us. We don't have anybody who would die in our place if he just was a sort of an ethereal thing. Who died in our place? And who paid the sacrifice for our sins? So it's an important argument. And so John tells us with absolute certainty, just track with me, that Jesus had a real body. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard with our ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, Jesus, <clears throat> the life was made manifest, we saw it, and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was, which was made manifest to us. And we have proclaimed what we have seen and heard also to you. Look with me at chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit or every teacher, but test the spirits, test the teachers to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. But by this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit and every teacher that does not confess that Jesus is, uh, does not confess Jesus is not from God. So he wants us to be clear. Jesus was 100% human. He saw him. He touched him. He talked to him. He heard him. And he was 100% God. And the two things are absolutely vital for us to believe if we are true children of God. Look with me at verse 14 of chapter 4, where John says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he abides in God. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. Everybody that believes that Jesus is the Christ, the God-man, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Look at verse 5 of chapter 5. Who, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And again in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal Life. So John tells us the true children of God believe in Jesus Christ. We need to conduct a doctrinal test. Do we believe the right things about Jesus? Doctrine is not something that is unimportant. It's not something that is unnecessary. It's not just something that is for brainiacs. It's for all of us. And John is addressing, the, as someone once said in a commentary, the real danger is not unbelief. 
in the church. It's wrong belief. It's not irreligion, but heresy. It's not the doubter who's the trouble. It's the deceiver. And so we've got to be aware. We've got to, John is concerned about wrong belief and about heresy and about deceivers rising up in the church, and so should we. We've got to be careful about what we expose ourselves to when it comes to teaching from the Bible about Jesus. Because it can sound great, but it might not be. And so we've got to make sure it's in line with the Scriptures. Jesus was not fleshless. He was not bodiless. He didn't just appear as a man. He really was a man. He wasn't just a good teacher who taught the ways of God. He was God himself in a body. And if we don't believe that, then we don't have salvation. You take away the body, no sacrifice, no substitute. And our sin is still on us. Take away Jesus' divinity, on the other hand. And even if he died as a man, what value is it to save us? Because only an infinite God who died on our behalf is a sufficient sacrifice for sins. So the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, they've got to go together. And they're both needed for our salvation. And we must make sure that we protect those and we understand those. Because true children of God believe that Jesus is the Christ, God incarnate in the flesh. So that's the doctrinal test. So ask yourself this week, do I believe that Jesus really is the Son of God come in the flesh? And if we do, then we can be one step closer to being sure that we are true children of God. Now, there's a second test. And the answer to the second test is this. The the true children of God keep God's commands. So after the doctrinal test, there's a moral test. For John wants us to see if we claim to know Jesus, but we don't obey Jesus, then our words are false. Okay? Because true belief always reveals itself and shows itself in true obedience and righteousness. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, because you'll see it here clearly put in a positive way. John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. So by this we know that we're true children of God if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So there's a moral test for us. Do we keep the commands of God? Look at chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 because John says exactly the same again but this time in a negative way. You know that Jesus appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
So the original audience, this original house churches in Ephesus had doctrinal errors, but they also were faced with, the, with uh, moral errors. They, were, they had a problem with sin. They were living in wrong ways. And so John comes and addresses them and he warns them, listen, if you know Jesus, you keep his commands. And if you keep on sinning without repentance, then you could be sure you're not really a true child of God. And then he points them to the root of their sin problems. In chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, where he calls them to not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the, of the eyes and the pride that we have in our possessions, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So he says the root problem of our sin is because we love the world too much. And it manifests its way, it, it, itself in so many different ways. But at the root is we want what we want for ourselves more than we want God. And so we don't keep his commands because we want our way more than his way. And John says we've got to conduct a moral test on our lives. If we say we love Jesus, our profession and our walk should match up. It's impossible to love the world and to love God. A combination of loves is impossible. It's the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. You can't love this world and say you love the Father. You can't love money and the things that money can buy and love the Father because you can't serve two masters. You serve one or the other. And John says the same thing here. You can't love two things because if one is pulling this way and one is pulling that way, eventually your heart is just going to be ripped in two. And you don't want that to happen. So the difference between obedience and disobedience is the difference really between love for God and love for the world. And John, all the way through the book, uses the contrast of light and darkness to help us to see. Do we walk in the light or do we walk in the darkness? Do we love God and walk in the light, or do we love the darkness and love sin? And he says, if you're a child of God, we want to walk in the light. Now, obviously, there are times where we sin as Christians, aren't there? You know, we sin, probably most of us have sinned recently within the last two or three hours, perhaps, with attitudes, maybe even behaviors that we've, we've done, things that have gone through our minds that shouldn't have. So does that mean we're not really Christians by John's test? Well, no. Because he gives us hope. Look with me at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1. Because no Christian lives perfectly. So we mustn't misunderstand John. But when we do sin and when we do make mistakes, John promises us this truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So my little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. So John says, take the moral test. See if you're lying ways. That there's an increasing obedience in our lives as we become more mature Christians. But if there is sin, run to Jesus. 
Because in him there's a hope and there's forgiveness of sins. So let's ask ourselves, do we obey the commands of Jesus Christ? Is our faith genuine and backed up by an example of faith and life? If not, then our profession is empty. If we look at our lives and we go, there's no holiness here. There's no righteousness. You know what? I love the world more than I love God. And we could talk about in groups how you identify that. Perhaps that could be a great discussion. But if we find that we love the world more than we love God, then, but we say we love Jesus, then we've got to listen to John. We're lying. We're lying to ourselves, and we need to run to Jesus. Our words, without a life of holiness, just reveal that our words are empty. And John wants us to realize that if we say we're disciples of Jesus, if we say we're followers of Jesus, then we should be following him in some way and in increasing ways as our lives go on. So the second test is a moral test. If we've got hold of the real thing, if you want to know what true Christianity is, if you want to spot the counterfeit, then you see that the true children of God are increasing in their obedience to God's commands. But there's a third test. The third test, and the answer to the third test is this. The true children of God love one another. So there's a doctrinal test. Do you believe the right stuff? There's a moral test. Are you living it out? And then thirdly and finally, there's a love test. Do we love others, other Christians, as God has loved us? Look with me at chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. For John says this. If anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see, or whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So how do you spot counterfeit Christianity? How do you know what is real faith? Believe, live it out, and love the brothers and sisters in the church. Now, John is not really commanding anything new. He's just turning our attention back to the things that Jesus said in John 13, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another, for by this all people will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. So John is just re-emphasizing this again and again. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Chapter 3, verses 14. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Again and again, if you love God, you will love one another. If you are a true Christian, there will be love for the brothers and sisters in the immediate church that you're in and worldwide whenever you come across another Christian. There should be an immediate love, a disposition of love. And he wants to get past this idea that healthy churches are not just people who believe the same things and work with their hands in obedience but have shriveled hearts. That just means our faith is empty and hollow. Oh, we might have healthy brains and powerful strong arms and hands to do, but if our hearts are not in it, everything is hollow. Think about the words that Paul says in that famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of angels, but have not love, I'm like a gong, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to, remove, so as to move mountains, but not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, what do I gain? So John says, true Christianity can be spotted by those Christians that love one another. With a Christ-like compassion, with a Christ-like consideration, with a sacrificial love where we lay down our lives for one another. And John doesn't give, it the, give us the excuse of, well, it's okay as long as you love some people in the church. Love those who are like you. And love those that you like. That'll be good. No, he calls us to love everybody. To love those who disagree with us. To love those who are difficult. To love those who annoy us. Love them. Lay down your life for them. Serve them. Sacrifice for them. Just as Jesus laid down his life for us to love the unloved and the unlovable. So ask ourselves the question this week, do we love the people of God the way Jesus loves them? Is it actual and active? Do we love them with our money? Do we spot Peter in need and say, we can help him get back to Hungary to die through our giving? Thank you for that. Do we love people with our hands, i.e. we serve them practically? Do we love people with our, our time? We sit and we listen to them. We pray with them. Do we love them with our lips in the sense of we speak the truth to them? And we comfort them or encourage them. All the ways that Jesus loved us, we must love one another. But John also tells us if we're struggling to love one another, here's the solution. Look at with me in, in chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So he says, if you're struggling to love one another, the best thing to do is go back and see the love that Jesus has had for you. But chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so, beloved, if, if God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. The true children of God pass the love test. They love one another as Jesus has loved us. So this week, ask yourself, and as you read over this month, First John, ask yourself the doctrinal test. Do I believe the truth about Jesus? Ask yourself the moral test. Do I live it out? Is there increasing obedience to the commands of Jesus in my life? And ask yourself the love test. Do I love the brothers and sisters of Grace Church the way Jesus has loved me? And then he closes his book with these words in verse 21 of chapter 5. Little children, and that's just a, that's not a condescending tone. That's a, his heart as a father to this church. Like gathering them around on his lap. Sitting by the fire with them as a sort of a, 
a fatherly figure and he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. And as you read through the book of 1 John, you'll think, where on earth does that come from? What a weird way to end a letter. Why doesn't he do what Paul does in saying greetings to so-and-so and so-and-so and and to Andy and John and Sam and Ben and Rachel and Sharon? Why doesn't he finish with some greetings and some thanksgiving? Why doesn't he finish with a great benediction? You know, may the love of the Father and the peace of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ be with you forever and ever. Amen. And everybody said amen. But he just says, keep yourself from idols. Why? Why is he finished like that? Well, it's designed to pack a punch because he wants us to go away with that question. Have I given myself to idols or have I kept myself from idols? And the way that you will know whether you've given yourself to idols or kept yourself from idols is if you've passed the three tests. Because genuine faith requires believing and obeying and loving. And any faith that, that doesn't have all three of those in some degree is fake. It needs all three. And so to say, when he says, keep yourself from idols, he's saying, if you don't have all three, then you've somehow slipped into idolatry. You've not believed the truth. You've given yourself to a fake and distorted faith. Oh, and keep yourself from that. Please, believe the right stuff. Don't think Jesus is unconcerned with your holiness. He is, and he commands our obedience. And as the head of the church, he tells us to love the body in the way that he loves them. If we don't do those things, we have given ourselves to idolatry. We've fallen into a counterfeit faith. We've believed on a distorted Jesus, but he wants us to hope in the real thing. So he says, keep yourself from idols. Assess yourself. Take the tests. And so my prayer is this month, as we read through this book, we'll be instructed and provoked by John. We'll take the tests. We'll see where we stand. And maybe some of us will be convicted and we'll need to repent. Maybe some of us will be challenged. We need to grow in a particular area. Hopefully all of us will be assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And if you fail the test or you score substandardly on the test, you thought, I thought I was doing better than that. Then here's the hope we have. Through the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can grow and change to pass John's tests. Let's pray now.